Hey, what is up, everyone? I'm Zach, your host of the Auxoro podcast, The Voice of Music, where we dive deep and deconstruct the stories of music artists, industry pros, and others to answer the question, what makes us human? This week's episode is brought to you by The Ox. Now, what is The Ox? The Ox is a compact weekly newsletter bringing you the five coolest things that we come across each week. These little nuggets of coolness can range anything from art and life hacks to recipes and workout tips. That's right, I'm calling you fat. So every week we discover some information or tools that enhance our lifestyle and we would love nothing more than to share these things with all of you. Nothing is better than cool shit, especially cool shit that's free, which this newsletter will always be. If you're ready to take your cool to the next level, at least our version of cool, you can subscribe to the newsletter with the link in the description of this podcast or visit auxoro.com slash the aux. That's A-U-X. Now for this episode, we're trying something new, a series called Heartbeats. So what is Heartbeats and what made me want to start this series? Auxoro has been focused on music artists and the music industry since its inception. While I love music and the people involved, I saw a lot of people and their stories passing me by that didn't necessarily fit into the music category. Ironically, I felt like I was restricting myself to one genre of the conversation. For me, it's more about what I learned from conversation, how it makes me feel, and the applicable practices gained rather than what category I can fit the conversation into. So on Heartbeats, we will explore people's stories that don't necessarily have direct ties to music. Maybe you'll come along for the ride, maybe you won't. But either way, these stories are important to me and a lot of other people too. With that being said, Taki Green and the story of Momentum is the perfect place to start this series. Momentum is a media company that connects athletes and fans by allowing them to share stories, passions, and expertise in ways not offered by traditional news and media outlets. And before we recorded this podcast, Taki and I spoke months ago about both of our visions to create platforms that deepen the human connection. Taki co-founded Momentum with Trevor Bauer, a professional pitcher for the Cleveland Indians. I don't talk much about it on this podcast, but baseball is my first love and I played the game for 18 years of my life. The first video I ever came across on Momentum was a montage of Trevor Bauer mic'd up for a 2019 spring training start. As a former player and a current fan of baseball, this video brought to life a lot of the inner conversation that goes on inside a pitcher's head before and during the game. Things like humming along to the music during warm-up, trying to throw the absolute shit out of the baseball, saying what's up to fans before the game. This video and other stories on momentum hit home the fact that professional athletes are human beings. They are not immune to the tendencies, emotions, and thoughts that we all experience, the good and the bad. In this conversation, Taki talks about his own journey with the game of baseball, working with Driveline, a data-driven baseball performance facility located in Kent, Washington, what sparked his interest in filmmaking, a solo trip to Japan, and the mission behind Momentum. By the way, you can find links to all of the projects we talk about in the description of this podcast, or by visiting watch-momentum.com. Without further ado, here's our wide-ranging conversation with Taki Green and the story behind Momentum. And when you 
yeah, I was going to say, first of all, thanks again for taking the time to sit down and talk with me because I know you have a, a super busy schedule since you've jumped into Watch Momentum. It's, it looks like pretty much full time. I know we haven't talked since last early last fall. It's probably around September, October. Mm-hmm. And you kind of uh, were putting the ideas in motion or it sounded like you had somewhat of a vision inside your head. And now that other people and myself can see what you've created, it's it's been cool to watch from afar. And so thanks for setting aside some time to talk. I really appreciate it. Dude, of course. Especially, I mean, yeah, it's crazy. Like, what was that? Uh, yeah, September? Was it even before that? I don't know. Yeah, we were talking about... Uh, what, is it La Flama Blanca? <laughs> so he uh, he was doing some things, and I, I think he said he was hosting baseball players or something like that. And you were also figuring out what you were trying to do as well. And so yeah, it's it's been a pretty crazy few months, I guess. Yeah. So to, I guess to kind of for the viewers or the listeners, like uh, La Flama Blanca is Alex Casillas. He's a good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, that's and right. We've always uh, kind of talked about. Like there's just a need for behind the scenes access. Like I think a lot of people, especially in today's day and age, like they just they can see through like basically the bullshit of like, you know, the staged answers and like the staged questions and like all this like, you know, mumbo jumbo. But people actually want to see like the real raw stuff, whether that's good or bad, like people want to see it. And, you know, Alex and I would just stay up late at night talking about like ways to counteract that there's a need for it and like in a variety of spaces and then i remember like we connected i was like dude like you're doing it like especially like in the music industry i feel like there i mean obviously baseball industry too but music as well like you know the media controls so much of what their narrative is you know they have to do so many spots and so many interviews and like there there's always a camera on them like that's trying to like sort of like a tmz type and they're always almost like against them so you know well, I was going to say around the time that we talked, I think it might have been... Actually, I don't know. Because it was the Mookie Betts clip that I saw in <laughs> spring training where he was mic'd yeah. up and playing outfield. Yeah. And I don't know if I saw it at the time when it went live, but I, I remember just hearing about it around the time when we spoke. And in my mind, something clicked for me where... And this was before I even uh, heard of uh, Watch Momentum where you've, or you verbalized or made uh, like the concrete platform of watch Mm -hmm. momentum Mm -hmm. where I saw that and something clicked in me where I thought this is the future of sports coverage or or baseball coverage at at the very least, because I was so glued to that type of content to the point where I was just looking for mic'd up footage after that, just anything that I could find baseball dugouts, people like pitches on the mound. And this was before any of the footage you guys put out because I just wanted to hear the unfiltered thoughts that were going through guys' heads, like Mookie Bess that are playing, uh, I think it was right field at the time. And just the unfiltered catharsis of, oh, fuck, like, I'm not getting to this ball. <laughs> like, <laughs> so like, like, like I got this, I got this. No, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> like, there's something so awesome about an engine. Like, he is literally having an interview in right field, like, where we're so used to, like, the professionalism of, like, sports and, like, they have to do everything right. But like Mookie's just like super chillax, like kind of like paying attention to the game, obviously, but he's like interviewing. And then like a ball hits him. He's like, oh, fuck, I'm not going to get this one, boys. Like, that's so awesome. Like, I, I mean, like, it's crazy that that's like, that's such an easy thing to do. Like in a general sense of like, you just put a mic on somebody and they just talk. And it's nothing like, they're not doing anything crazy. They're just 
being themselves, but yeah. it has such high value because it humanizes the guy. Like he's just a regular old dude that's just like talking and he just happens to be really good at, you know, a specific thing that everybody likes. But I mean, NFL has done it for a while. Like, um, like I remember. Yeah. The, uh, uh not, uh, Brian Erlacher. I'm thinking of, uh, he's a linebacker on the Texans. Cushing, Brian Cushing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That Mike yeah. DeVito wears helmet. <laughs> is he had busted to do that helmet? Yeah. And he's just a psycho on the field. That's yeah. one of my. That's one of the ones that I found when after I saw Mookie Betts. Right. When I was just going through all these mic'd up videos. Yeah, no, it's so awesome to be able to like, as a fan, see from afar, like obviously what's going on, but like to then get the real live access of like what is going on in that exact moment. Like, I think they had Tom Brady mic'd up in the Super Bowl this year, last year when they were down mm-hmm. and they basically posted a clip of like, he just never had any doubt that he wasn't going to win. He's like, dude, it's all good guys. We're going to get this. Don't worry. Come on, keep pushing, keep pushing. And like hearing that guy talk in that moment were like to us as like a fan, we're like, Oh, they lost, you know, there's no hope. Mm-hmm. But you know, hearing that mic'd up of like, you know, the legend Tom Brady just being like, Hey, no worries. We got it guys. Like that's, that's awesome for me as a fan to kind of tune in and be like, that's what's, in, that's what's going inside the head of like one of the all time greats is, uh, are those thoughts. So, yeah. I mean, I think mic'd up stuff, I mean, on a grand scale, like if everybody was bought in would be kind of like a subscription model where like everybody's mic'd up and there's like, you know, nine channels. Um, and you can cycle through like, Oh, you know what? I'm going to tune into what the pitcher's saying. And the pitcher's like, you know, grunting or whatever. And like, oh, you know, wow. I'm going to tune into like what the catcher's saying. And then you like tune into, you know, that frequency you tune in and you're like, Oh, you know what? What's, what are the guys in center field saying? You know, like what's the, the trio of guys in the, uh, the outfield saying right now, you just kind of tune in. So like, I think at the highest scale, like honestly, like what I, I like esports is doing is very much like that, like mm-hmm. talking while they're playing and like interacting. Obviously, baseball probably can't do the much of the interacting part, but just you know, engage. You could pay a thousand dollars to turn on Mookie Betts uh, receiving <laughs> mics. So you could talk shit to him Dude. during the game if you're a Yankees fan. <laughs> oh my god! Like people like have like a bo- like a moderation board and all that. Like people, mm-hmm. people would love to do that. Like, like a thousand uh, bucks, you get one minute talking shit to Mookie Betts. <laughs> yeah, like uh, I mean, that just brings the fans that much closer to you know what they see on the field, and that's just. You know, that's just the future. It's just trying to bring fans and the players of interest closer in connection. Going back to some of those early conversations, it, it could be with Alex or or Trevor. What were some of those early conversations like when you were kind of surfacing the idea of Watch Momentum before you had the actual business plan and platform in place? What were some of the things that you were talking about achieving before you actually you know, bought the domain, started making content, things like that. Yeah. So about actually literally a a year ago, I was out in spring training with Trevor. I had just left driveline baseball where I was like head of marketing there uh, to just do freelance. I don't know. I just felt like I was missing something more. Like I wanted some more substance. Like I wanted to cover more substance. I had like fully dedicated myself to video. So I was like, I love marketing. It's great. I like seeing numbers rise and fall with views and all that. But you know, I really don't care as much about that as opposed to the story. So um, I went out to spring training with Trevor just for kind of fun. And we were, I think we were on some kind of hike or something like that. And, you know, like we're just shooting the shit basically. And Trevor was at the time having a lot of complications with the media. I think he said something that got misconstrued. 
And he was just, you know, complaining about it. And I was like, yeah, it sucks, man. Like just print media, print media is really hard to basically voice your tone and all that. And like your inflection. So like if I'm being sarcastic in an interview, it's really hard to portray sarcasm over like print media. So Trevor's very sarcastic and dry humor in that sense. So a lot of things could be mistaken for. So we were talking about that. And um, I think there's like the end of the hike. I think he was flying his drone. And we kind of like, kind of hashed the idea of like, dude, like what if like, like a player or like us kind of, you know, basically made a media company or like if we kind of controlled players' messages, like it's so far heavily in the hands of reporters and whatnot. Why can't the players control their message? And like, you know, I have a camera. Well, why can't we do that? So from then on, we kind of just started hatching out like, how, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get bought in? Like, how are we going to get players to buy in? But basically that spring training, we kind of laid out the floor plan of like, all right, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. And we're going to do it our way. We're not going to have anybody tell us what to do. And we're going to be, we, we wrote out like a list of like adjectives of like what we want the company ethos to be. Like we want it to be raw. We want it to be authentic. We want it to be humanizing. All those things. And like once we had all those kind of on paper, we're like, okay, what types of way are we going to be able to hit those points and those type of adjectives in order to like have our message, you know, widespread? So that was kind of the the birth of it all and overnight success and well not even a success, but overnight, you know, company took about a year and a couple extra months to actually come to fruition. What was that? original gap, if you don't mind talking about it, and Trevor's perception when you said you were having a conversation about a certain way he was portrayed in in the media at the time. And obviously being someone who's close to Trevor, you know what his true, authentic, raw personality is, like the adjectives used to describe Watch Momentum. What was that original gap that you saw the adjectives that people were using to describe Trevor in the media? And the person that you knew that he actually was. Yeah, no, I have no problem uh, talking about it. So like Trevor, I, honestly, Trevor's probably the most controversial player in baseball. Probably not even close. Just because he's very blunt in what he does and very honest and forthcoming. So that's not a very typical thing for somebody, not even baseball, just in general. Like if you're usually honest with somebody... That means like a decent amount of the time, you're going to have to deliver bad news. And so when people deliver something that's blunt and honest, sometimes comes off that there's like some kind of motive to it. Like, oh, why is he saying that? Is he trying to like, you know, play it up this way? Like, I'm not even sure what the <laughs> the problem was last year, but even like this year when he said like, oh, if I didn't get hurt, I would have probably won the Cy Young. And people may interpret that as like, oh, does he... Is he bashing Kluber, his teammate? Or is he bashing Verlander? You know, is he bashing all these guys? He's like, no, I'm not. Those guys had great years. I'm just telling you from like a statistical point of view, if I had kept up the rate of where I was going at, I would have probably won the Cy Young. And it's just tough for people to kind of wrap their heads around that. And that's kind of the gap that we see. When somebody talks, or Trevor, an example, he had like this huge expose in ESPN where he sat down with a guy for basically two days straight and kind of gave his like life story, um, which is great. You know, that openness is awesome. But as in print media, you can't be typing out a 15,000 page like document of a transcript of like that conversation. So you have to chop it up. 
then when it gets chopped up, you know, you're pulling quotes here and there and you can kind of twist the, not even twist, just having to chop down and stuff kind of, it leaves people for interpretation of what that narrative is. And if there's already a certain narrative out there, then all those words can kind of be twisted into that narrative. So his narrative is like bad teammate, bad clubhouse guy, kind of like arrogant asshole. Whereas if we had interviewed that potentially, his expression, kind of the emotion, where he's coming from, why he's this way, why he's that, and having more time to explain it, I think it could have come off a lot different. So I think at least the solution that we see is that if we can get people in their natural state of their natural being and kind of have them just talk and just be themselves, I think people are going to see the real them because it's a lot easier to portray something visually than through written words. Yeah, for sure. And even with the Kluber representation or, or uh, the quote from him that was misconstrued in the media, there's a conversation to be had there instead of just bashing Trevor. You could say, all right, well, I mean, I disagree, but let's look at this. Like, let's see if he would actually, if he could pr- continue on the path that he had shown in the past with his track record and the track record that season, would he have actually gotten enough votes to win the Cy Young? And that would be an interesting conversation that could be like a content piece or something, like a discussion with Trevor and and someone else in, uh, that's a pitcher or Kluber, someone else that is able to argue their position if they disagreed with him. So that's it's an interesting standpoint. Yeah, like it's not even that Trevor has to necessarily convince somebody that they have to think his way. They just have to basically see that like, oh, that's that guy's point of view. That's his fact. Like, that's what he presents. Okay, like we can agree to disagree, but at least I know where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. Like he's not, you know, personally attacking somebody just because he like hates them or whatever. Like yeah. that's never the case. It's like, oh, like I feel this way because of X, Y, Z. Not like, oh, I, I feel this way because like I hate this guy. Like that's not the case. And that's never where he's coming from. And that's where he sees a lot of his frustration because he's like, I'm not out to like be the bad teammate. Like I'm trying to be a good teammate. Like I'm just, you know, just being blunt and honest with like how I feel. And I'm like not bashing anybody. I'm just presenting facts as I see it. And I think that's where the gap was is that once, so like 2012, I think was like kind of the start of his narrative. So I, th- he basically was really quiet in the clubhouse because he just, you know, never. This is in Arizona, right? Yeah. This is in Arizona. He had a lot of trouble there. So basically him not talking to clubhouse, kind of like not like interacting with the team because that's always how he's been. Like growing up, he didn't have like a ton of friends. So his best way was like keep his head down, not really talk to anybody. Basically the media portrayed that as him being a bad teammate because he's not interacting with guys. And from then on, it's kind of followed him all the way through. So anytime like he doesn't talk to the media all the way through or something like that, it basically goes back to that narrative like, oh yeah, that's right. Cause he's a bad teammate or a bad clubhouse guy. And like that's followed him for, you know, what, seven years now? All because of like, just this, like, he just didn't want to, didn't know how to interact with other guys and didn't feel the need to do it. And that shouldn't be portrayed as a bad teammate. It just happens to be that he was shy. And, and that's unfortunate that that followed him for seven years. And he's still working through that. And it's been, you know, at times it's really tough to get through that because a lot of guys, once you get that idea in your head about somebody, it's hard to shake it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And going off that, I wanted to take a step back into an earlier part of your life before this kind of all came together with Trevor and the platform of Watch Momentum. And I was going through the 
life story visual diary that you have posted online a while ago. And one of the quotes that stood out to me was from you. It said that, well, I guess <laughs> any quote is from you because it was your visual diary. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we'll just say it's from you to clarify. And you yeah. said, I had always been go with the flow. I don't go against the crowd. And I found comfort in being non-confrontational. And from your end, I wanted to know if there was a, a specific situation or a certain event in your life where you chose that non-confrontational path in the past that you wished you had spoke up or, or done something when you're referring to that time of not going against the crowd, if any specific memory sticks out. I mean, honestly, like a lot of my life has been based on like non-confrontation and like going with the flow. Like basically all my life I've been told to like respect my authorities, which you should, but like I gave so much trust into other people where you need to be selfish at some points. Like as much as I love to say that some like X person gives a shit about my life, like they have their own life to worry about realistically. Um, so I need to, you know, take care of myself. So once I made that realization, that kind of flipped the script with me, like even getting recruited for college. So I had, I had talked to Gonzaga for baseball and I talked to New Mexico for baseball. I think New Mexico offered me like my sophomore year or mm-hmm. junior year of high school. Like that's, that's pretty early. Yeah, no, that is in the recruiting process. In the recruiting process. And I like potentially could have waited to like, you know, hear out some more offers, but I was getting a ton of pressure from other people. Like, you need to do this. This is your one shot. Like, you're not going to get another opportunity like this. And I kind of just like took it off. I was like, okay, whatever. Like, whatever you guys think, I'll just do that. And like, I didn't even put much thought into like, oh, like, well, I like playing New Mexico. Is that the best option? Like, well, I see playing time. Whereas like, I didn't think about any of that. I was like, oh, like, you know, my coach and all that have the best interest in me, which they probably did. But it's the fact that I never even thought about the consequences or anything like that, that, you know, is worrisome. And I think a lot of people may fall into that. And that was like a huge, that was a huge decision, but I put legitimately no thought into it. I was like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, I'll sign there. That's fine. You know, I don't, whatever, you know, and fast forward to my freshman year of college, I, uh, I was experiencing arm troubles. I, uh, is this at New Mexico? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So like my freshman year at university of New Mexico, I got there, my arm was kind of hurting. And at that point I was on my own for so long. I've depended on so many different people and like college is my first experience of being on my own and my arm was hurting. And I was like, Oh wait, like, (laughs) like who do I reach out to? I don't have like my, you know, basically my base back at home. Mom and dad aren't there. Who do I reach out to? Do I reach out to the coach? Do I tell him my arm hurts? Mm, well, that kind of like rock the ship. I'm on scholarship. And for like a red shirt, like if you take a medical red shirt, they still lose that scholarship. So there's a ton of pressure to obviously play because they're going to spend that money regardless. So I was like kind of secretive about like my arm injury. I was trying to fight through it. And eventually, like I basically didn't tell anybody until it came too late where I was like, I literally could not throw. Like my shoulder was hurting that badly. I just kind of like blew it up in the coach's face. He's like, well, what do you mean your arm's hurting? I haven't heard anything about this. And that was because I've never taken like responsibility for what was happening to me because I've never had to. I've always thought, oh, they'll take care of it. My parents will take care of it. Like my coach will take care of it. And that was the first time that like I literally had to take responsibility because I had no other choice. I had to tell him that my arm was like literally 
felt like a, an IED exploded in there. Um, <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. That's right. You played. So it was at that point, you know, I got set up with the PT and started doing some work and trying to figure it out. And even so then I had no idea like what to do. Like I was like letting them take care of me, which they obviously should like, they know more, but you know, I was just like going through the motions, like was, you know, had really no direction because, uh, up until that point I had trusted so much of the process. And now that the process failed me, like, you know, I did everything right. You know, iced my arm, ran, did all this, did everything what the coaches told me, did everything that people have told me. And not to say that they're wrong or right. It's just, they did what they could do at their best. Like nobody actually knows what goes on in the shoulder at every single pitch. So they did what they could do. And I blame nobody. Um, it was at that point where, you know, I was what I was, it was like November. Basically I knew I wasn't going to play and I was kind of just in the weight room, like eight in the morning, just kind of going through the motions. I'm like, what am I, like, what am I doing? How have I like basically gone through the motions my entire life? And this is where I'm at. This is where it's taking me. Like I've put all this trust into like, you know, all these different people, but I've never taken responsibility. And this is kind of where it's at. Like this is where going through the motions has gotten me. And it was at that point, I just like hit my low because I just like, I felt like life has failed me. And I just, I couldn't accept the fact that like I potentially failed myself because I couldn't take responsibility and I didn't know what that was. So that's when I felt like I kind of hit like my rock bottom. Like I thought baseball was, cause I've gone through the motions so much. I never really thought ahead. I was like, oh, I'll play baseball. I never really thought about like, oh yeah, baseball could potentially end at any given moment. And at that point it, it basically did. I didn't play after that freshman year, but at that time I was like, am I going to get surgery? well, what's, what am I going to do? Like, am I going to lose my scholarship? If I don't play baseball, do I want to be at the university of New Mexico, which is, you know, completely out of my comfort zone. You know, I'm like, I think I was, I had to have been the only Asian person on that team in like the last hundred years. Like, I don't think (laughs) my teammates have even played with an Asian person, which is like phenomenal, which is awesome. So now you're just destroying the Asian baseball player stereotype. You're like, oh, this kid isn't going to stick around. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly like the, like they all exactly like work through the pain and all that but yeah i'm only half asian so maybe that's what the problem was but no yeah i uh i definitely get that intense feeling of kind of not knowing of where you're gonna go after a certain point especially when you feel like your careers come to an end and i've spoken a little bit about it on the podcast but not much because i'm usually not talking with people who have played baseball but i can definitely identify with the notion of of telling yourself, like I had this whole plan since five years old of how I was going to become a major league baseball player. And until my senior year in college, basically when a combination of injury, me being apathetic to training and the actual game of baseball and just not really giving a shit and trying as hard, truthfully, to as, as much as I used to, did that whole kind of facade crumble in my mind and in my life where I'm like, fuck, I'm not going to be a major league baseball player. I'm probably not even going to be a professional baseball player, which I d- didn't end up playing any, any sort of pro ball after college. And now I just have this whole piece of my identity that I had built up for 15, 17 years. And it's just gone. And now what the fuck do I do? Dude, it's like, I think a lot of, players or even like people that have dedicated to one task 
if like if I looked at myself in the mirror, like honestly at like whatever nineteen twenty, like I could probably tell myself like, yeah, I'm probably not going to play professional baseball. But you never really get the chance to do that because you're in the moment and you're not really thinking about that kind of future. You're just trying to think about the day to day, like, oh, how's my arm feel? I should probably do this, like, oh, or even like, oh, so when's my next start? Like, you're not thinking about like, oh, in five years I'll probably be done with my playing career, or like I'll get one more year of pro ball. It's very tough to like think about that and have that honest conversation. So like you can never truly prepare for like that last day where it's like, Oh, I I am done. I haven't really thought about what's next. What was your thinking process like during that rock bottom period? Like you were saying, how did you start to kind of, cause you really have to dig yourself out mentally before you make a plan to physically move forward with anything. Absolutely. I mean, that basically like the tail end of that first semester and that second semester. Oh yeah. I would say I was like definitely depressed. I never experienced anxiety before. And I would have like anxiety attacks. I would actually like, I would literally call my girlfriend at the time and I'd be like, why am I like, feel like I have shortness of breath or like, why do I feel this way? Cause I've never had anxiety. She's like, yeah, you're having an anxiety attack. I'm like, what? I feel like I'm dying. Like am I having like a heart attack right now? Like what's going on? And she's like, no, you're like, having an anxiety attack. Like I looked it up and I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. This is like, I'm hitting all like the points of like, Oh, do you feel this way? Do you feel this way? I'm like, Oh yeah, I I do feel pretty terrible. I'm just picturing you on WebMD going through a checklist (laughs) of like, am I I dying or am I having an anxiety attack? (laughs) Literally. I mean, I'm very much like when I'm like really freaking out, like I'm very like, I try to like joke as much as possible to calm myself down. So she probably thought I was like, not having an anxiety attack, but I was like, I literally thought I was dying. And I was like, oh, like, why do I have shortness of breath? And yeah, I was literally like on web and MMD and like, just like Googling, like, what does this mean? Shortness of breath. Oh, it means you're having a heart attack. I'm like, okay, sweet. Nice. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll, figured out, I'll see you guys later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See you guys. It's been a good one. You know, nice ride. Yeah. Whatever. It is what it is. But yeah, like, you know, I started experiencing a lot more anxiety attacks because it was also at that point, like my shoulder was like legitimately just fucked. I just literally couldn't throw. So I was like, is it the yips maybe or something? Like, why is my, I just never have experienced like arm pain. So I was like, is it like referred pain? When I got the MRI, they basically said like, I didn't have much labral issues. I didn't do the ink dye, but so like at that point I was like, am I like, I have to be losing my mind. Like if there's nothing wrong with my shoulder, why does my arm hurt? So like I went to see like a psychi- like a sports psychologist and they're just like, oh, you may be like overthinking it. I'm like, well, how do I fix that? How do I not think my shoulder hurts? During this time, were you creating any sort of content? I had legitimately no interest in like video or content creating like at all. I had devoted so much time to baseball. I didn't even, I didn't even pick up a camera until like a year or two later. Well, what I was like kind of interested in was storytelling. So I was actually, I think I went into college with some like, I think I want to be a kinesiology major because I didn't think about it. And I ended up switching to like uh, broadcast media. I was like, oh, you know what? Like a storyteller, I feel like a news reporter or something would be interesting. So I ended up switching my major to that because I really did enjoy storytelling. I didn't realize that my path was potentially video. I just like, oh, like I like news and I like stories. So maybe I'll like write. Uh, realized I'm a horrendously bad writer. That was good to find out really early on. But that time I was just studying to be, I think like a, if like I went through all that, I would have been like a news anchor. I think that was like the projected goal of mine. 
so I was like writing up reports and like getting in front of the camera and like doing like these like bullshit like uh, local news kind of reports and like writing in the writing in the paper and I, I thought that was like pretty boring because I didn't realize like it's a lot of just again like the stuff that we were talking about like kind of mumbo jumbo bullshit like oh baseball won by three today yeah like the things that you could yeah. look up and find on a quick exactly. google search and you don't need to watch an entire broadcast exactly. I felt, to figure I felt more out of like a curator than a creator you know i was just like just sourcing what was on the scoreboard and just like throwing it on a piece of paper I'm like oh this is super boring so it sounds like you had at least the the pieces of storytelling starting to I want to say replace the identity of baseball because that may not be true because I, I still feel like there's a certain part of me that has my identity rooted in baseball and I want to go back to it someday it, as tie into what I'm doing to sports eventually in some way. So I want to say it's it's gone at all. I still have a, a huge part of me that identifies with uh, what I've gone through in baseball, but it sounds like at least storytelling is starting to enter your mind as something that could possibly fill the void of what you thought baseball was going to be in the Absolutely. future. I basically like devoted like, you know, however many hours in a day to baseball and like that's completely gone and I'm kind of left with nothing. So I'm basically scrambling to figure out like, okay, what am I what am I going to do with this, you know, time that I have now? So basically, it was around second semester where I was kind of turning it up a little bit. I like got like some what was a part-time job I got at University of New Mexico? Oh, I was a gym ops manager or something like that. I was just working at the like the school gym. Just, I mean, honestly, like the story with that, I knew that laying in bed and watching Netflix was just going to put me further into this dark hole that I was in. I mean, for, a, for like the like last two months of like for the last month of the first semester and the first semester, first month of the second semester. I just literally crushed Netflix in bed eight, nine hours a day. Absolutely numb to what was going on around me. I've been there uh, a couple of times. I had a couple elbow surgeries back in the day. So that was pretty much every second of my life, like two months out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine for like elbow surgery too. That would that'd be tough. It wasn't uh, anything terrible. It wasn't the full Tommy John oh, gotcha. surgery. It was the technical term is an ulnar nerve transposition. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But basically my nerve just got moved a couple of times and it actually wasn't that terrible of a rehab process, not compared to what other people go through for Tommy John and ACL and, and shit like that. That's much worse. Yeah, my friend actually just got nerve transition, which uh, what is basically like a month, month, six weeks recovery. Yeah, for position players, I think it's six to eight weeks until you can start throwing again. Were you a position player? Pitcher. Oh, okay. So I had to wait a little bit longer. I got you. Well, yeah, it's still not fun. But I mean, I don't think a lot of people understand like even like surgeries and just sitting there like that just messes with your mind. If you're just, you know, numbing your brain and just not doing anything. I was actually having this conversation uh, the other day when we were talking about these same exact things, sitting, watching Netflix, kind of numbing your mind, escaping. And we came to the conclusion that those parts of your life are going to happen but the best thing that you can do is minimize it and just be aware of it in the moment like say i am purposefully escaping reality right now 
it's much worse to think that you're okay while you're doing it. Like everything's fine. And then three months go by and you're like, what the fuck just happened? Like to have an awareness of what you're, that what you're doing is escaping and you're not, you're kind of pushing everything off, which happens. Like people, sometimes you just need to get away and just numb your mind, drink a bottle of wine, whatever the fuck it is. Like, no, I, I completely agree. Like, I think there is a need to escape, but yeah, I think it is being conscious of like, all right, I'm going to a lot this time to like, just basically shut down my CNS and just like, you know, watch the office, watch all seasons of the office. But Good choice. Uh, yeah, it's great. Like that's what I did. So I watched that, watched Breaking Bad. I didn't watch much TV until call it like basically crushed like all this stuff that I've missed because I was so focused on baseball. Yeah, I mean, watching Breaking Bad while I was in Albuquerque was pretty sweet because that's where they shot it. But yeah, I mean, I was fully like, yeah, I just, you know, was going with the flow again, not taking responsibility. So I was just crushing Netflix, didn't know what to do. And then like, I kind of like, I don't know what snapped me out of it, but I was like, dude, I got to like, if I keep doing this, I'm not going to do anything with my life. I got to like do something, get outside, you know, see sunlight after like two months. So I basically, I've never had a, I never had like a job, like an actual job before college, uh, just because it was like baseball, as you know, like summer ball and all that just takes up so much time. I mean, I did yeah, like exactly. um, umpiring in like little league, but that's hardly an actual job. So basically I didn't like understand like applications and all that process. So I literally went to the gym and I just went to the, the like, I should have asked, but I just went to like the office, like the manager's office. I was like, Hey, do you have like a job? He's like, what? I was like, yeah, do you have like a job like for me or something like that? Like, where can I like apply? He's like, uh, did you like apply online? I'm like, no, are you supposed to do that? I don't know. Like, just, I'm just curious if you had an extra job. And he's like, uh, no. So I literally, so I literally came back every day for like a week and a half bugging him until I think he just literally was like, dude, this guy's so fucking annoying. Like, just give him a job. I don't care. Like, whatever. And like, he just gave me like, you know, like the morning shift and like the night shift. And I just, I just did that. But yeah, you gotta just, do what you gotta do. I just literally just, well, I was like, dude, you got a job. You have to have some time. He's like, dude, like, no, I don't. I was like, yeah, see you tomorrow. He's like, God damn it. Like, and I just did that for like two weeks and until he finally gave it to me. And then I did that basically, you know, <laughs> interacted with like humans. That was like a, another positive thing that came out of that. Cause I didn't do that much since, uh, Obviously, my roommates were baseball players, so they were gone most of the time. So you were working that job, and what was your inception into actual getting behind the camera and creating content uh, besides the aspirations of just storytelling in general? Yeah, yeah. So at that time, I was like adamant that I was just going to move to California and like go to like a broadcast school. I was just like researching, like, do I want to be a camera operator? Do I want to be in front of the camera? And I just, I was just fascinated by like media and like, it's just a, the most broad spectrum, not even like film or anything like that. I was just like, I just know I kind of want to do this media thing. I don't know if it's going to be written. I don't know if it's going to be whatever. So this is what, 2015. Yeah. 2015. I was thinking about transferring to like some Cal state school, like I think Fullerton or Long Beach. I don't know. One of one of those two had like a broadcast program. So I was like pretty adamant on doing that, you know, filling out my application and whatnot. And so basically finished out that year, 
gearing up to transfer, like not to play baseball anymore. I just like basically looked myself in the mirror. Yeah, well, I actually take that back. I'd like to say that I did that, but I was still holding on to the chance. Like maybe I'll go to like Fullerton or Long Beach and like walk on after I rehab. So uh, finish up that year, asked for my like release and uh, went back home. I also realized I, I went to New Mexico as a two-way player and I've had shoulder problems with my other shoulder, my right shoulder. I'm a lefty. And, uh, oh, me too. Nice. Oh, that's sweet. And uh, dude, lefties. That's the only lefties reason I got it. That's literally the only reason I got into college. I write righty, ball. so but I throw lefty, so I'm like a really? fake lefty. Yeah. What? You know what's so... weird? I, I played tennis when I was younger too, up until high school, and I served righty and I hit righty. And basically, oh, no, you no. take a tennis racket I... out of your hand, you you throw right. Like, it's the same motion. It's, it's so, that is, but that's I throw actually, that's weird. actually crazy. Do you, yeah. can you throw right? Can you throw righty? I can oh. throw righty harder than righties can throw lefty. Got you. So I'm like so, a better opposite thrower than most people. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, if you can, yeah, if you play tennis with your right hand, you should definitely like if it if you took like six months and like trained, I bet you could be a pretty good right-handed thrower. I can throw a football pretty well, righty. I think there's something about the weight of the ball that kind of maps out my right. motion. But with if you put a baseball in my hand, it can I can throw it okay, but it just looks really weird. Like you're just like. Like what the fuck are doing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like my righty throw is like horrendous. Like, like it looks horrible. I mean, so you like, convinced you convinced me to make a comeback. That's all I needed to hear. <laughs> That's right, dude. Hey, man, if you're ambidextrous, <laughs> I hope at the end of this podcast, we're we're both uh, scheming our comebacks back into some type of semi pro ball. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, Pecos League. That's their the calling it. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that's that's sick. But yeah, so. I went back home with like, I had problems in my right shoulder because I was rehabbing both. Cause like, you know, you just do both movements when you're rehabbing, like just to keep things mm-hmm. symmetrical. And I was like, man, my right shoulder hurts. It's always dislocated. I dove back into a bag when I, in my junior year of high school and it popped out, but I didn't like it went back in eventually. I didn't know that I like, I tore a bunch of shit in there. I just never really gave me problems up until college and start until I started working out with it. Cause you know, if you're not, you're not dominant hands, basically, you know, it's whatever. So I, I never really gave much attention to it. And so I went back cause I wanted to get an MRI again on my left shoulder. Cause it was still giving me problems and my right shoulder was still hurting. And so the doctor was like, Hey, you know what? We're going to put you under the MRI anyways. You want to just do both shoulders? I was like, fuck it. Why not send it? You know? <laughs> and, uh, when he got the reports back, he's like, do you know you you know you tore your labrum in your right shoulder? I was like, I did. Oh, that sucks, really. <laughs> yeah, your and your labrum's like also like on your left shoulder, like pretty fucked. But actually, it was way more fucked than my right shoulder. And I was like, oh damn, really? really? Um, damn. That's why I kept on popping out. Like once I started like working out with it, and like yeah, dislocating shoulders like not fun, but it's like manageable, and it's tough to explain. Like it's just a really uncomfortable feeling. But the more times you do it, like I guess the nerve ending. Yeah, I guess you just started to get used to it. Yeah, and tolerate the pain. So it yeah, didn't really seem like an immediate problem. Exactly. So uh, the doctor's like, "Well, you know, you don't have to get surgery, but it'd be good, like you know, if you don't want to have your shoulder popping out when you're like 60." I was mm-hmm. like, uh, "Fair, fair, fair." So he's like, "Well, if we get shoulder, if you get surgery on your left shoulder, your baseball, your baseball career is probably over, or at least you'll be pushed back." two years like from the last time that you played so like interesting point so i was like let's get the surgery on the right shoulder 
you're going to have to rehab anyways. You just do both rehabs on left and right shoulder. And, you know, I'll see you in six months and we can reassess. So I was like, okay, that's cool. So got surgery on my right shoulder, still gearing up to go to California at the second semester. Um, so I basically had like, yeah, seven months back in Seattle in my hometown. And uh, I love to say that like, you know, I got out of that, that rut that I was in New Mexico, but I still was just frustrated at life. So like, I was just like horrible when I was home, like lashed out at my parents, would just do a lot of stupid shit, like really, really dumb shit. Like, if you know what I mean, like, really, I know, really, yeah, <laughs> I know what you like, mean. yeah, like just really, really, there's stupid. like a lot of misplaced frustration. And especially when you're going through stuff like surgery and you're not really sure where to direct it. And yeah, it life just kind of sucks in general, at mm-hmm. least from an isolated standpoint when you're just kind of assessing everything. So I definitely understand the, the misguided anger at people that don't deserve it. My roommates yeah. can tell you about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it just sucks because like there's nothing you can do really. Like if your labrum is torn, it is torn. Like as much as you want to like just wish that it wasn't or like fix it, like you're going to have to like get surgery and all that and like sit out for the a lot of time. Can't make it faster or quicker. I mean, marginally. But um, yeah, so like, you know, got surgery, broke up with like my longtime girlfriend, probably because I was just being like a douche and a dick about life. So I was like on my own, that happens, like lash out of my parents, all that. I was just so mad at the world, which like made me like, just, I don't know. It was just a bad, bad place to be. So it was the summer of that year. And this is actually when I started working at uh, driveline baseball. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I came back, Kyle kind of caught wind that like got surgery. Like I, like I basically hate baseball at this point. Yeah, and just for people listening, Kyle Bodie is the founder of Driveline Baseball in Seattle, outside of Seattle. Yeah, yeah. So like I can even preface what Driveline Baseball is. So Driveline Baseball is basically, at that time it was nothing, but what it is now is basically like this world-class training center for where a lot of pro baseball players go to like get work in and basically fix a lot of their pitches. Like they work with like the Dodgers, they've worked with the Rangers, they work with the Indians, they've they're all over. So, but at that time, I used to train with them like two or three years previous when they were really, really nothing. And now they're like, they kind of got some products, you know, like it's not super janky anymore. It's still janky. Like they're still working out of an attic, but you know, at least they have like a logo and like stuff. So Kyle's like, dude, like glad that you're back, you know, stop by the facility. You know, I specifically remember like stop by the facility, whether you like baseball or not. I'm like, uh, that's, that's actually kind of nice, you know. I kind of hate baseball right now, so you know, I'd rather just probably just talk to him just as is. So uh, I get in there, and you know, it's the same old setup. He like wrote a, I think he wrote Hacking the Connect Chain, which was his first book about you know basically his what he thinks about how to train baseball players. So that was pretty big, and I was like pretty pumped for him. He had like been trying to write this book for like two and a half years, and I guess he finally did it and um, came in, kind of shot the shit. I was kind of like standoffish a little bit because like I was just around baseball and like that's only that's how I knew Kyle was as like a you know baseball guy so I was like eh, kind of you know quiet and whatnot and uh basically he was like look man like <laughs> we're actually getting you know quite a few more clients like you know I might need help on the floor and like just training guys and just you know just watching the office would that be something you're interested in and I was like oh maybe I was like at first I was like fuck that like 
I, I want to get as far away from baseball as possible. Yeah, of course. And yeah, like, you know, like if once it like hurts you, you don't really want to go back to it initially. So I was like trying to find other jobs. I applied to, like Adidas store and like Nike, like didn't hear back. And so, you know, Triline was kind of there. And, like they like the pay was like pretty good, you know, like for a kid out of college with virtually no experience. Not even out of college. I was still in college. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'll try it for the summer. Three months. No problem. Uh, which that turned into five years or four years. But yeah, I just basically started working with them in the summer where I was like, basically, I was also taking online classes in order to transfer over to Cal State or whatever California school I applied for. And um, yeah, like basically that, like driveline was basically the start of like me actually getting behind the camera and shooting stories. Was uh, so was when that. you got to driveline, were you doing more administrative tasks right away, or you were straight yeah, up behind was, the camera? And that, no, no, that no. Took like, time? It was, it was, it was very, that took time. It was basically just because I know you said you started fooling around with some stuff because right. Kyle or maybe someone else mentioned that they had a need for video content or they wanted to make it look more professional, and then you were right. fooling around with it in a bunch of aspects, and it kind of turned into this job. Yeah, basically that's what kind of happened. So like, you know, I ended up staying at driveline, not going to school. I just felt there's a lot more value in me just like being in the thick of it rather than like learning from afar. You know, I was like, yeah, basically dropped out like at 19. I'm like, I was like running, like I was like, I learned how to like run the website at this point. Or yeah, I was like, yeah, sophomore age. I think I was like 19 going on to my 20, still being an absolute like jackass at home. So my parents kicked me out. Uh, nicely, like you know, they uh, it was it's fine now. But uh, how, how did they kick you out nicely? <laughs> like they're just like you should probably move out if you want to be this way. And I was like, that's fair. Like you know, it wasn't like you know they packed up my bags and threw me out. They like mm-hmm. kind of helped me in the process of getting an apartment and stuff. Uh, but it was a uh, definitely like pushed in that way. So I like got nicely kicked out. You know. Mom, sorry if you hear this. Um, but uh, she's actually sitting here with me right now. This is an intervention. That's right. Oh, they, they break down the door. Yeah. And then, yeah, rehab. Basically, moved out. Uh, was on my own. Was was in an apartment on my own in like West Seattle at like nineteen, but like in a better position. You know, like I was like, you know what. Yeah, fuck it. Like I'm taking control of my life. I was like, got my own, got my own place. You know, kind of felt good about myself. I'm like running. I'm helping run driveline. I was like the second employee there, third, third employee. So this is very, very early on. Super like early on. Yeah. yeah, there's like, I mean, we were probably pulling in like we we had to be probably breaking even at the company given our salaries and all that. Like, <laughs> or losing money probably. That's probably more likely. Probably losing money. And so we had just moved facilities and all that. And at that point. Like I had my hands in so many different things. Like I was doing emails, a lot of bitch work, to be honest. Like just, uh, you know, answering phone calls, like sending programs to people, just a lot of busy work. And I was like, this, eh, this is like, I don't really want to be doing this for the rest of my life or even in the immediate future. I was still really interested in media. I wasn't really looking to do like this broadcasting anymore. Uh, like I just didn't really interest me. Uh, once I got a taste of it a little bit in New Mexico and just doing more research, I was like, they just cover really bland stories. So it was at that point, I was like, what if I like started like video editing? Like, what's that look like? So I would like on my off days, I would like download like 
New York City stock footage, 4K. And I would just try to edit it with like cool music just to like see if I can make it look cool rather than just like, you know, shutter stock footage. So I used to do that. And then I remember asking Mike, who is the CEO of Driveline, I was like, dude, like, what if like I posted some clips on our website? And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't care. I'm like, Anything that we do is going to be better than doing nothing. So like, yeah, yeah. whatever. Man. So that's kind of what got the door open. Yeah. I was like, kind of like, yeah, what do you think? You know, and he's like, I don't care, man. I'm like, whatever. Like, he's just like, oh, like blowing me off or whatever. He's just like, do whatever you want, man. Like it's, it's so, like, it doesn't matter. Cause he probably just didn't think it would amount to anything. And so like, I started like posting stuff on my social media, like just making these like really dumb edits, but you know, like, Here's Trevor Bauer side view throwing 95. And I'd do that. And like it'd get some like hits. I'm like, oh, this is fun. Then I'd add some animations. And then uh started like adding photos to the website. And I'm like, oh, this is fun. Like, you know, making things look cool, making things look good. I'm a huge fan of the animations, by the way, because I've I've seen a bunch of the videos and that was at the tail end of my college career when you started posting some of that stuff. So like when people would hit a home run or like throw something really hard. And then you would pan to like a movie scene or like something yeah. funny going on in TV that kind of embodied the emotion of what was going on. And I'm yeah, blanking I mean, out on where the specific clips were from. But at the time yeah. when I was watching it, I was like, oh, I've never seen someone make sports clips like this. Like it kind of looked like you were just having fun with it, which sounds like you were. Dude, literally. I mean, uh, it's off. Like kudos to Driveline for giving like the range to a 19 year old. <laughs> on so, did they pretty much give you creative yeah i was gonna say they pretty much just gave you full creative control over the content side yeah like basically i mean because there wasn't even a position for that like uh i just we just because of the growth of the company i just kind of made that position as i just started going like there was no head of marketing we didn't even have a marketing division so i just started posting like things that i enjoyed like I don't know. Like, uh, like I like memes. Like, I don't know who doesn't like memes, but I was like, oh, like, I'm just gonna, what's the hottest meme this week? Like, the SpongeBob <laughs> meme. I'm like, how the fuck do I put that into a video? Cause that, that's just, just gonna be funny to me. And, yeah. uh, gladly, gladly, there's other people that enjoyed that. And I was like, oh, whatever. Like, I, and I just ran with a bunch of things that interested me. And then, like, you know, Mike would kind of like rein me in, like, all right, we should probably not go that direction, but I like this direction. I'm like, okay you know, you can help me steer the ship, but I just kind of, I was a loose cannon. I would just do whatever literally popped in my head and which was awesome. And I think that a lot of people, employers or whoever, or even like in just general, like if you give a person freedom, most of the time they're going to, you know, do right. And like just having that creative freedom to explore what is interesting and whatnot, you know, that brings you into new spaces. Yeah. I was going to say, I, it's interesting you say that because I follow driveline on Twitter and I've seen Kyle tweet about in the past how he gives people control, even interns. I think he's said things about research and development of how he has a budget, a certain budget, and he allows people to go pick projects and basically just explore their interests and try to come back with results or something actionable, which I think is the best way how to create because, you know, people, uh, when you put restrictions on things, people get less creative because that just puts walls on possible outlets that could have been explored. And as someone who's the owner of uh, a company like that, and I don't know because I've never been in a position like Kyle is, but I can imagine it could be pretty unsettling to give an 18, 19 year old a budget and complete control. But it just speaks to 
the faith that he had in you and his employees that he was able to make that decision and kind of be hands off. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like huge kudos, like (laughs) whether he like saw the end goal or was just kind of like monitoring, like, okay, it's fine. Like he's kind of tiptoeing the line. I'll, you know, I'll stand back. He hasn't like done anything wrong quite yet. Yeah. Kind of like pushing, like, when is he going to say something? (laughs) Yeah. Just like, just kind of waiting for me to like do something wrong and then just like scream at me, which hadn't happened. Thank God. But yeah, I think like even like in your space, like music, like how are you going to push the bounds of what is new and real if you just keep on doing the same thing over and over again? Like innovation isn't done by doing the same thing over and over again. It's by like trying something different, probably failing at that the first time. And then like, oh, maybe if we did this, this and this, like then it would be this new sound or like this new wave of music. Like it just makes no sense to me how like, even like even growing up, like we're told to do a certain thing this way and a certain thing that way. Like this is how it's supposed to be done. Like and do it that way. And that we were just all robots at that point. We're all the same person. When <laughs> humans, uh, like that's our advantage in in our in just the world is that we can we can be free thinkers. And I want to go back to the Trevor Bauer video of fathers and fans from the 2017 playoffs. The one that you said had gone viral and was kind of the the spark for the video content for Watch Momentum, at least the idea and the seed in your mind to do this on the Watch Momentum platform level? So basically what happened was, I think a week before his game one start, so he called me, he's like, dude, I got the game one start. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Like, I'm so pumped for you. Like, you've come from like, so much, like even the first half to this to the end of the year, like you've basically jumped through so many hurdles and now I'm really proud of you and all that. He said, like, you know, the reason I'm actually calling is what if I flew you down here and we like basically made a playoff film like before my start? I'm like, I am so in. Like that sounds amazing. There's nothing like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just with the timing of it all, it'll be awesome. So assuming that you win. We never really talked about him like having to throw like really good. Like imagine if he like got shelled, that would have been a complete waste, basically. Yeah, I think it was, uh, he came out after, what, six and two-thirds or seven innings, four yes. nothing, something like that. Yeah, yeah. He, he, had, like, he had a no-hitter till the sixth inning, punched out like nine. Like, you know, that film would have been... Just casual. Yeah, very casually, we just never went over like, oh, it'd be kind of important that you throw well, which I'm glad he did. I was going to say that film was very powerful for me to watch. And I, and I watched it around the time when you released it. And then getting ready for this interview, I watched it a couple more times. And for those listening, the audio cut out on my first description. So I'm, I'm attempting to basically rechannel my description that I said to Taki while this wasn't recorded. So this is what I basically had to say. That the video with Trevor was powerful to me because... I think one, the lack of speaking, direct speaking in the video. And and what I mean is that no one was being interviewed per se on camera, but people were still saying things. And and for those of you who haven't seen the video, it's it's Trevor and his dad getting ready for the ALDS game one of the 2017 playoffs. And so Trevor's dad is entering the stadium. Trevor is in the stadium and they're both doing their own thing. And there's this back and forth of his dad getting the tickets at the box office and 
walking up to the field, seeing his son warming up. And then at the same time, Trevor's below in the dungeon and he's doing the things that a, a typical baseball player does to get ready to warm up for a game, whether it's bands, weighted balls, stretching, rolling out. And nothing's really being said to the camera, but all of this emotion is being conveyed through facial expressions, through spaces in actions and just raw human emotion, things that you wouldn't really pick up on from the, the fan perspective or the, the audience perspective if, if there wasn't a camera there to capture it. And so like one of the things for me was just like the simple action of Trevor pulling his jersey across his back or his scaps squeezing when he's doing bands or the expression of him rolling out is things that every baseball player can visualize himself doing. And it makes it really easy for you to put yourself in that position and it humanizes a lot of those pregame routines. And same thing, I'm sure, for fathers as well. The getting your ticket before the game and kind of like anxiously looking on and waiting to see like what's going to happen with your son and how they're going to perform and being nervous to talk to other parents and the catharsis of emotion when they do do something well and seeing them trot off the field and all, all of these emotions that are being conveyed through the lack of speech, I think is what made it hit home for me. No pun intended. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, just like uh, all those things that I have done, not on the major league level, but just like going through high school and college baseball and knowing that my dad has felt similarly, even though it's not the same exact situation, it's at a much lesser level, the emotions are still there. And I think the through line of that video is what makes it so powerful and what makes it so identifiable. I mean, yeah, you basically nailed it on the head. I mean... And we're still recording. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you nailed it again two times in a row. Yeah. I mean, at the time, I thought obviously didn't even put that much thought into it. I mean, really like where it came from was like, I don't know if it's my stubbornness or if it's even the right way to do it, but I still operate on this level was like, what do I actually like? What would I actually want in this film? What would make me like want to watch it? I lay that out and I'm like, okay, how do I do this? Like, I will, like, if I can hit these points, then that, I'm going to love it. And if people like it, cool, but I'm never going to post something that I'm not going to like. And even if like the potential side of it gets more views or whatever, like, I don't think I'll ever aim for that. I don't think I'll ever be fulfilled. Like, I could give a shit if that got three views or, 300,000 views. Obviously, it feels good that, you know, a lot of people liked it, but, you know, at the end yeah, of the day, sure. I, I have, I have to like it. So that's kind of what I went on. And like, once I figured that out, I'm like, all right, like, I would love to see behind the scenes. Like, I want to have that connection that, like, you know, brings really fathers and their son together. Like, baseball is such like a hometown kind of game and like your dad watching you in the stands and like making him proud. Like, that's awesome. A lot of the times when I trot on the mound, like I'm just so psyched when I hear my dad in the background, you know, over on the right side, like screaming my name. And like when I struck somebody out, like, you know, that's awesome feeling. And I knew that like his dad has been really close with Trevor for so long and they have battled through so much being unorthodox and whatnot. So I knew that this would be an awesome thing for them. So. And Watch Momentum now is a, a co-venture between you and Trevor, right? You're both co-founders. Yep. Yep. So 
after basically that, I mean, fast forward to now, like we are basically trying to do that with other players. Like we want to not obviously like the, like a uh, uh, father to a son, but even beyond that, like players to fans, like I want to create that connection. I want to create that, like, damn, this guy's awesome. Not be, not because he's like a great baseball player, but because he's, you know, he's a surfer or like he battled depression and now he's bouncing back from it or like he battled cancer or like not even like those heavy hitter stuff, but just, or like he used to be a pro skater. Like Mike Clevenger used to be a pro skater and actually chose baseball. Sk- over he was a pro skateboarder? The, pro skateboarder. Like was wow. filthy. Yeah. Like, I did exactly, not know that. Like, you know, exactly. Nobody knows anything about baseball players and I want to be the, at least help in aid that like, dude, this guy could have been he was actually really good. He was actually better at skating than he was at baseball. He, I don't know, for whatever reason, he chose baseball. But yeah, he was like, I mean, he's still pretty good at skating from what I, I know. I was going to say, going off of the Mookie Betts video that we were talking about before, I was watching the the Trevor and Clevenger tossing videos <laughs> when they're just tossing yeah. back and forth or talking shit to each yeah. other. or Trevor's <laughs> making fun of Mike's throwing motion or saying shit along the lines of, oh, I hope you airmail this into your fucking car. <laughs> Shit like that, or like, or Mike turns around, like, yo, you see what I'm dealing with here after Trevor Crow hops one at his ankles or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. Are Are there any uh, any techniques or certain ways that you set the stage for guys to be comfortable like that, or is it just kind of like you give them both mics and you just sit back and observe, and then later on you go back and edit it and try to narrow it down that way? It's a combination of both, I think. I want to come across as much as possible as like not just a video guy. Like I want to be your friend. Like I want to shoot the shit with you or whatever. And I want to be on your side. A lot of the times when like a mic flips on or a camera flips on, guys get kind of straightened up and they're just like, you know, they remember what they were told when they first got in the league. Like, all right, these are your three bullet points. Do not go outside of it. If this person asks you this question, this is your can response. Like I want the complete opposite. I want to like, as soon as I meet them, like I'll just like start talking shit or not talking shit to them, but like just saying whatever, like, you know, baseball's fucking stupid or like, you know, just trying to be as real as possible. And so they kind of get the stage of like, oh, I'm amongst like, you know, I can kind of let my guard down and be that way. So maybe like, you know, within the first, I know Clove like previously, but like even he showed you with like a new guy, like I won't have my camera on me. Like, we'll just kind of be like, hey, man, like, what's going on? Like, like, you ready for this? Like, this is kind of what we're going to do. But like, honestly, man, like, if you want to just say whatever you want, like, I'm going to be editing it. So you can literally say fuck 400 times. Yeah. Like, you know, you you don't have to worry about it. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fucking do that for you. I feel like the uh, building trust before you're actually pressing record or just trying to smooth into that recording transition sometimes maybe even without them noticing it's a lot easier to do on a podcast but like for example my brother helps me with a lot of the sound for the in-person podcasts and i'll just be casually talking to someone for 10 or 15 minutes and i didn't do this at the beginning a lot of times i would just get into the room kind of like freeze up and like be like oh fuck I don't know if this is going to go well. <laughs> I just start talking. I'm like the, all the other person had to go on before that was like, this kid just walked in, looks kind of nervous, is sweating a lot. And they just started asking me questions. <laughs> and then That's I started awesome. to, and then I started to realize like 10, 15 minutes into the interviews is when I really started to feel more of a connection. So I just yeah. started 
trying to talk to people for 10 or 15 minutes before my brother actually started recording. And then a lot of times he would just press the red button recording and there's most of the time there's no camera. So it's like they're not even paying attention and it's just continuing on from there. Are there any sort of things for from your perspective? Because you are using much more video and on-camera stuff where like the person it's it's much harder to notice not notice a camera in your face than it is to notice like a zoom recorder on the side of a table what are some of the (laughs) things that you did for example with leonis martin that was such a touching story and for people who aren't familiar this is a a video with uh leonis martin where they go into how he was diagnosed with a it was a blood infection so I don't know exactly what it was but it was a blood infection basically right before he was traded to Cleveland and he talks a lot about how he received so much support from the Indians when he didn't expect it because he had just gotten there and he goes into a lot of some of those more intimate human moments where he legit thought he was not going to see his kids again thought he was going to die a lot of the things that the media just wasn't covering or not covering heavily to to that extent what were some of the things that you did or spoke about with Leonis before the actual camera turned on to kind of put him in the position to feel that comfortable? Because it's such a hard subject to talk about. And he looked like he was kind of like having this catharsis on camera, which wouldn't be possible without feeling comfortable in front of people. Definitely. I mean, it helps that basically Trevor interviewed him as like a teammate. That was really helpful. But basically, we save that interview till like the end of the day. So we shot a bunch of stuff throughout the day. He kind of got a feel for it. Like obviously Trevor's there, he's working out. Like I'm there, like I wear like normal clothes. I'm not like looking super professional and I'm kind of shooting the shit or whatever, talking about stories around the league. Yeah, He's getting more comfortable with us. And like, we just want to be, we just keep on reiterating, like we're with you. Like we will send you the copy first just so you can look at it before we even post it live. Like that's our policy. Is that yeah. every time we film something with a player, we will send you the link. You're like basically the executive producer. You put what you want in it. If you don't like this or that, we'll take it out and then we'll post it. Like that's like that's just our policy. So like just having that being said, and like when we first reached out, like, hey man, we want to pump you up. You weren't there with the Indians for, you know, you're there for like a week or two. So like let's just get some hype around you, man. He's like, Yeah, dude, of course. That sounds great. And um want to tell your story because I think it's really powerful. And like, we kind of went over through that. And when we got out there, like, uh, we kind of just like joked around a little bit. He like showed us around his house. We like talked to his kid and stuff. And then like, once we did all that, we're like, oh, yeah. I was like, let's just do the interview right now. You cool with that? He's like, yeah, of course. Like whatever. <laughs> um, like very, we just want to make it as nonchalant as yeah. possible. And like the, our DP was setting up the lights. We were just like talking about like, you know, just like what the season's going to look like and just like shooting the shit. Like, you know, just like any friends would do. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, let's just do the interview now. Like, you know, we'll just roll right. Like we'll go like basically right now. He's like, okay, I'm good. And just kind of like what you're saying, like how like you unofficially start recording, like right as soon as the, like you start talking, but like the 10 or 15 minutes is kind of like just, you know, informal talking. And then you kind of like bridge that into like the actual conversation. It's very much the same way, obviously a little bit tougher with like video and setting guys up, but even when the guys are in the chair, like I'll actually start recording, but like I won't be sitting behind it. I'll kind of just be like walking around or whatever and be like, Hey, it's like, we're probably gonna be talking about this and like kind of 
maybe joke around a little bit while it's still recording. And then we'll kind of like go into the actual flow of things, just easing into it. I think the right to final cut, basically allowing players to see the interview before it gets posted also must be a huge peace of mind thing too. And which is what we do with our interviews and podcasts. And awesome. so, I mean, sometimes people don't take us up on it and they're just like, oh, I didn't say anything stupid. Like, it's yeah, yeah. fine. And then other times yeah. people just want it uh, just as peace of mind. But I think just the fact that you're offering it makes other people know that you're not out to get them, which I think can be the perception of media sometimes is that they're just out there to create a story, whether or not that's the story that right. you actually told. So I think yeah, that goes that. a long way with players. And it sounds Especially. obviously it does. Just seeing the reactions from people on camera and how people have reacted to the content. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, we've been up for a couple of months, but it's been pretty decent feedback so far. And it just helps that obviously like a player is involved. So like it'd be weird that a player would want to, you know, bash other players. Like they're all on the same page and whatnot. Like I get it if it's like a third party or whatever. Like uh, it's just tough to, reiterate like we're with you we're with you but like if a player is involved and like it's even his teammate like there's no point in him like destroying like the player like yeah it's not like trevor's gonna tell uh mike after an interview like sorry the indians were over payroll they want me to get you saying something bad on camera <laughs> yeah exactly right <laughs> you're gone <laughs> like, yeah exactly like this is a malicious effort sorry, actually dude. like uh, yeah this um, is a documentary on how you're a terrible person another uh, thing yeah. i wanted to highlight that I thought was powerful is the way that the connection, like you're saying, player to player allows people to put themselves in the shoes of the actual player. Like the conversation that Trevor had with Javi Baez when he mm-hmm. was talking about how he treats the MLB field the same way that he does when he was a kid. And especially uh, since I've stopped playing baseball, but I've been around the fans, I've noticed more and more how the more traditional, the older group of fans get outraged by emotion on the field. And I don't even think they know why. I think like just the emotion kind of pisses them off in some way because it's something that they're not used to. So they see a player that like pimps a home run or does some like some sign sliding into second or pumps their fist or like curses on the field, something like that, like just a true outpouring of emotion. And when Javi Baez was saying that he treats the field like he's basically a kid out there and like, that's exactly what he's doing. And if I'm sure if you had the insight of seeing him play baseball in Puerto Rico and growing up and talking about how he played when he was a kid, like the things that he speaks about in this short clip that kind of connects the dots where you're like, Oh, like this is, he's playing how he's always played. Now he's just got more cameras on him. He's not trying to piss people off. I feel like especially with Latino players too, they play with so much emotion and they get a lot of shit. And it's a a lot of it, I feel like, is from the older fan base. And a lot of baseball fans are older. I think the majority are 52 and older or something like that. And that style of video, I feel like that conversation is a great way to not minimize the backlash, but Mm -hmm. more like to get people to understand where players are coming from. Because it's hard to perform at your best when you're not being yourself, when you're trying to like fit into a box. That is like perfectly said, like, especially with those guys, like people label them as like flashy and showboaty and all that. But like, that's just their, that's how they play. Like they're just having fun. Like 
And that's just how they express themselves. Like that's not showboaty or whatever. Like even if it is flashy, that's awesome. Like that's how they express themselves. Like that's just a flashy culture. Like, you know, if you're on the backfields playing like, uh, you know, on half the field or whatever with two bases and like make this sick play and like have to do like, you know, they're not going to be thinking about fundamentals and be like, all right, how am I going to blow this wiffle ball as hard as I can past this, you know, kid that's four years older than me or whatever. Like, I'm not going to be thinking about like, okay, I need to like be in a fielder's position or whatever. Like, no, nah, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make this sick or like get the best reaction from my friends. Like if I make this backhand play or whatever, like, you know, like how am I going to make this look sick or whatever? Like that's, that's what I like is the scene expression on the field. Yeah. I, I wish I did more of that when I was actually playing because <laughs> so much of the, the coaching what seemed like coaches almost cared about more how you acted more than how you played, which yeah. never, which I never made sense to me. It was all about like, oh, like, like you don't whatever, like pump your fist after you strike out the side or something. Or they're like, they basically wanted you to be a, a robot and play baseball and like do all this shit and not talk shit. Or like when you're a 10 year old in Little League, nothing bad is going to happen if you're talking shit to another 10 year old. Like chances are you're going to argue about it and then be friends five minutes after the game's over. But it's like all these little things that, not that all coaches are are bad because obviously they're not, but just the overall culture seems to, at least in America, take an affront to the emotion and the sport of baseball. I I think especially in baseball in ways that it's not pushed down in other sports. Yeah, I mean, it's just like the culture of like putting your head down and work and like don't, you know, disturb anybody. Like even like, even with like veterans in the league, like they like the hazing and like oh you can't sit on the couch so you have four years in the league in the clubhouse like that's that's fucking absurd like what like how do you expect players to like perform at their best when they can't even be themselves behind closed doors like how can they perform at the top level in front of forty thousand fans when they can't even be comfortable amongst their teammates and I, I think that's just a huge problem yeah if you're gonna be your most comfortable on the field and perform in front of all of those people, your team and those people in the clubhouse has to be your safe haven or else you're going to try to sink inside yourself and find refuge in yourself and not talk to other people and shut other people out. And then you're going to be perceived as an asshole when in reality it was that you had no outlet for trying to be comfortable in a league where it's so hard to be yourself. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is that like, I think baseball has really positioned itself and there's just a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, there's a lot of players that I think not only would it benefit in their personal life of just being themselves, but like, I actually think their playing ability will go up exponentially if they're just themselves. Like the conversation that we had, well, I mean, with all the players, but Clevenger especially, like he obviously is, you know, a different breed and he has like this long hair, a lot of tattoos, kind of hippie, but he wasn't like that all the time. Uh, when we sat down for an interview, like a specific thing that came up was, if I'm not me on the mound and anywhere, how am I supposed to be performing at my best? Like I'm going to be helping the team way more if I'm my, if I'm me, cause I'll be at my best. And I think that's true for so many guys. And I think a lot of guys don't realize that. Like they think the ways to like put your head down and like, you know, like don't nudge anybody's, you know, rough any feathers or whatever. And like, I mean, if you are that guy that puts your head down, it works. That's fine. But like do it confidently. You don't have to do it timidly where you have to like oh like he's a veteran i don't want to like ruffle his feathers like i hope he doesn't say anything about me or whatever like just 
just be yourself. And, you know, that's, and if people realize that, and that's only going to help the team, like, how would you not want, why would you not want to promote that? And for people that are not familiar with the story behind Watch Momentum, from an outsider's perspective, it may look like you guys started creating content a little bit ago, and then all of a sudden you're getting thousands of views on YouTube and Instagram and Twitter. And there's, there's a long, long, journey where all this stuff started to transpire. If you're cool with talking about it, what do you think are some of the biggest anti-home run moments of content creation or putting together, building watch momentum, basically failures that may or may have not set the stage for later success, things that while you were in the process of bringing this thing to fruition, like you're like, damn, like this is fucked. I don't know how we're going to deal with this. Yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, well actually, so clearly I don't like, I've never ran a business and I mean, I helped drive on all that, but, uh, I've never ran a business of my own. So like I have, I mean, truthfully, I literally had no idea what I was doing. I still have no idea what I'm doing, but like, you know, figuring it out. But about like eight months ago, I think like middle of the season, we were like literally thinking about launching the company. And like, I was like, we're like all go, like, let's get this shit out there. Like it's going to kill it. We had nothing. Didn't have a website. Didn't have any content. We were just thinking like, oh, we'll just like shoot it on the fly. And I remember the few days before we're about to launch, I just got like this waving of anxiety. And I like talked to Trevor. I'm like, dude, I am feeling horrible about this. Like we should definitely not do this. And I'm sure Trevor was like, dude, this guy's crazy. Like it's going to be fine or whatever. But like, cause he didn't hear anything about it before. But I was like, dude, like, I'm going to literally die if we relaunch this. Like, I will not be able to do this. And we basically hired on a consultant. His name's Azuro. He has run a bunch of like uh, independent like projects. He d- he's done a lot of stuff in like entertainment industry. And it was just basically, I was like, dude, he's a good friend of mine. And I was like, dude, you got to help us. Like, oh, like, we didn't have a business plan. We had nothing, <laughs> nothing at all. We just thought like, I mean, I don't know if it would have been fine or not. Maybe it would have been, but <laughs> we were thinking about launching with literally nothing and just kind of winging it without any real plan. And so that would have been, that was like an avoidance of disaster. Let's see another. What do you think just because I want to stop right there because I think that's interesting because earlier on we were talking about how you were always, you had been go with the flow earlier into earlier in your life up until college, kind of not going against the crowd. What do you think it was about that moment where you felt this? need to speak up like the wave of anxiety that you might have felt in the past and didn't say anything and you kind of held it in what about that moment caused you or made you feel like all right like i need to say something right here yeah so it's just i mean over time like with the increasing responsibilities at work and just like my personal life just growing up i just have increasingly found like you know you can't wait till the last minute to say something because then it's going to be too late. Much like my shoulder injury and all that with my coach, like being upfront, people may not like it, but at least you're nipping in the butt early on so you can at least have time to adjust. And even so then, like I probably could have said something a little earlier, but it just caught up to me so quickly. It was out of this responsibility that I felt like this is something that people need to see in baseball players. It's something that I've been affected by. It's something that Trevor had been affected by it. And I would feel terrible if I didn't say something and I just felt the responsibility that like this is something that can better the baseball community and 
I don't want to fuck it up. So, you know, it's my responsibility to kind of, if I see something wrong, I need to say something. And it was at that point I was like, look, Trev, like, this is a, (laughs) this is, this is a terrible idea. I'm like, where we're going right now. Yeah. We need to figure, we need to figure shit out. And it took us, I mean, what, like seven? What was his reaction? He, yeah, it was over a phone call. So Trevor is very logical. And that's what like, I like love about him. Like I'm, I'm probably like the more emotional kind of creative type. Mm-hmm. He's very logical, analytical. That's why it makes it a really good partnership. And so Trevor's like, why? Like kind of is like, all right, I hear you. Calm down. All good. I'm like, okay, okay. You know, I'm kind of like all over the place. And he's like, okay, why? I basically listed out like, we don't have a business plan. We don't have these tangibles. You know, we are just kind of just winging it. And I don't think we're prepared for what it could be. I kind of laid those things out and I'm like, I'm just not ready. Like that's just me personally. Like I am, I'm having way too much anxiety about this. I would not feel comfortable launching right now. He's like, okay, like what do you suggest that we do now that we can't launch? Cause you know, can't just sit there and do nothing. I was like, look, I know this guy that could potentially help us at least steer us in the right direction. I was thinking that it'd be like another two weeks that we could just smooth things over. <laughs> Obviously very wrong. Uh, it took us another six months to actually line things up. What was the official launch date again? The launch, uh, I think like... Or just general like the time last frame. One, la- la- last week of December. Okay, so this we, was around June when you were having this conversation? Yeah, maybe July, something like that. It was like during when he was playing, I believe. Yeah, so yeah, it was probably around that time actually. Yeah, June or something like that. That's crazy. Yeah. We had like, or I think we did have a website, but like it had obviously nothing on it because we had no content. It was just like a nicely designed website, looked kind of cool with Trevor's face on there, but we didn't have any guys on board. We didn't have any content shot besides some, like besides like the father of fans film, which we were just going to roll out with. And in between the conversation with Trevor and the launch date, was the trip to Japan or part of that timeline was the three week trip to Japan that we had mentioned? And so uh, I'll let you uh, preface this as well, or not preface, but dive into it. But basically, what I know about the trip, besides some sick Instagram photos, is that you went on a three-week trip to Japan, and it was solo travel before starting Watch Momentum. And from my perspective, I've never been on a solo journey for that long. I actually went out to Park City about a month ago to snowboard yeah. by myself oh, nice. for a week. That's awesome. That's and awesome. there was nothing like just being by yourself with your own thoughts, especially on a mountain where you're performing in action, like snowboarding. You yeah. can't really think about too much or else you're going to catch an edge and eat shit or go into a tree. Right. Like it kind of forces you to like be in that Zen zone. And I was doing that for a week straight. And then That's the awesome. conversations that I did have were just all str- strangers or people that started out as yeah. strangers, which was terrifying to me because I'd always considered myself introvert. Not that introverts can't start a conversation, but to me, the idea of it was frightening. And then I basically just paid for it and forced myself to do it. So I was like, all right, if I don't go, I'm going to waste all this money. (laughs) And it ended up being one of the best experiences of my life. So for you on that trip to Japan, A, how did you get yourself to the point where you wanted to take the action and actually punch the ticket and say, all right, I'm going to go travel by myself for three weeks. What are some of the 
most insightful things you learned about yourself or what you actually want? Not just from Watch Momentum, but just life in general. So I think, yeah, I was like coming around my birthday time. I booked this trip like, I don't know, like a week before, before I actually went out there. And so last I, uh, it's very ballsy. Okay. No, I said last second. Very ballsy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah last second. And I don't know. I was kind of thinking about like what the next year will look like. And I was like, well, you know, I've been like working super hard to like get all this sh- shit aligned up. And I knew once we launched, like there's no way to prepare what was going to happen next, like after that. So I was like, I need to get my shit aligned and like, you know, properly in like what I want to do. Like not just a company, like where do I want to take my life and where do I want to take this vision that we have for the company, my visions and all that. Like I need to get that all squared away. So like when it does hit, like it kind of has now, I'm, you know, it depends on where it goes in the season and all that, but I need to be ready for that. And I can't be doing that with a cloudy mind. Like, I mean, I just, it wasn't that I was like depressed or sad or anything like that. I just, there were so many different moving parts. Like, is the website ready? Do we have this and that in order? Like, how is our business plan? Like, what if we get approached with this and like all that? Like, if we are going to sell off equity, all those different, you know, variables like was caught in my mind. And like, I need to think beyond that. Like, it's tough to think beyond the day to day when you're in the mess of it. So, I basically said, like, you know what? I need to reconnect with my roots. I want to go to Japan. Like, I said, fuck it. Like, I'm out for my birthday. I'm going to go three weeks. And, like, my parents, are like, what? Why? Why are you doing that? Like, I don't know. I don't really have a good reason besides, like, I need to just clear my head. Yeah. And they so didn't like, even kick up. you out at this point. You're just choosing to go. <laughs> That's right. They weren't, exactly. they weren't shipping you. <laughs> yeah. Basically, I mean, ship myself, honestly. So I, you know, booked my travels and I luckily, thank God, my aunt was nice enough for le- to let me stay super last minute. Uh, she doesn't speak or she speaks a little English, but not much. So she did help me around a little bit, but, you know, I was basically on my own because it's just, I don't speak any Japanese, unfortunately. So it was, uh, it was just crazy that I, I've, I've never done that before and I've always wanted to. And just what I've learned, just like being able to observe like my surroundings, like I just walked to parks, I like did hikes, brought like a journal with me. And I just kind of wrote down like things that are just beyond the scope of what I was in. So I was just thinking like, all right, like what, what do I actually want to accomplish with like watch momentum? Like truly, like, is it the money? Is it the viewership? It wasn't any of those things. Like is like what I want to do with momentum aligned with what I want to live my life as if it was you know, I want to gain, you know, a hundred thousand subscribers on YouTube in the first year. Like, is that actually what I'm aligned with? And like the grand scheme of things? No, not really. And so I kind of started chipping away at that and kind of trying to do like the, I don't know if you've ever done it before, but like the 10 whys. So no, I haven't done that. So basically you asked this like broad question. I'm like, why do you like videography? And I'm like, oh, because I like telling stories. And then you'd be like, why do you like telling stories? And then you basically hit all the... Okay, so you're basically diving deeper into each why. Deeper, yep. Keep on diving like each deviation down until like you get down to the core mm. of it, or at least the end of it. And so I'd kind of do that with like the two verticals of like my life and momentum and whatever else I had. And I kind of was... Where was I? I was like so far away from civilization. I took like a train. I was in Kyoto. And then like 
I took this bus to like this like remote island somewhere. I don't even, I literally have no idea. And I, there's like this vacant beach and I just sat down there for like four hours, maybe five, lost track of time, basically when the sun set and I just wrote and journaled and kind of like mapped out like, what is my purpose? What do I want my purpose to be? What do I think my purpose is? And how do I get there? And like, how do I align myself so I can reach those goals? And what I came down to is what I think my purpose is, is that I'm here to like basically tell the stories that nobody else really wants to tell or people scare away from and humanizing people and bringing people together. Like whether that's through storytelling or just bringing people physically, physically together in like an interview setting or whatever it is. Like, I think it's my purpose to humanize people and like bring issues to a front so that it's normalized. Like we need to be talking about mental health. We need to be talking about this or that need to make those conversations more apparent to people. And that's kind of what I broke down while I was out thousands of miles away from home. I didn't have any plans for this trip, but that was a goal that was accomplished was aligning myself with what I really want to do. And like each action that I have, I want to be at least have some step in that direction of humanizing people and telling the stories that aren't being told often. So that's crazy how, uh, I was going to say in general, how writing things down and I've never journaled 10 wise deep to that extent, but now I'm feeling like I need to try it just so I can gauge my own intrinsic motivations to see if, if they align to what the values align with the values of what I actually want to create in a company, which I think is a very cool idea. And that also makes me think about how if I did that with baseball, my values would be almost the opposite of what they are now with with Augsworo. Like I, I think that if I was to do the 10 whys, it would boil down to something that is in a similar lane, hopefully, to the storytelling and, and humanizing the humanization process. If I was honest with myself and did it with baseball, I think it would be more of like, well, my dad wanted me to do this and uh, I wanted to make a lot of money and uh, I never considered any other options. I just like told myself that's how it's going to be. I didn't actually realize the work that goes into being a major league baseball player or even a professional baseball player and maintaining that field of work and what it takes to actually make a living. And I think I would end up coming to the conclusion that I didn't actually want to be a professional baseball player. As shitty as that sounds now, I wish I did it earlier. Right, for sure. But yeah, that's definitely a great way to uh, kind of boil down your your values and your motivations. Yeah, I mean, it's like with anything you can do with a lot of things. Like, I think a lot of people think like money will make like money equals happiness. But like, why do you think money equals happiness? And you're like, oh, because like I want these things. Like, why do you think you need those things? Like, oh, because like my idol has those things and he appears happy. I'm like, you're gonna base like that goal on some external factor. Oh, I want a Lamborghini. Why? Because it'll make me feel cool. Why will it make you feel cool? Because like X rapper has it. I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's the goal. Like, how do you know that makes him happy? How do you know he's happy? And so just distilling that down, I think just breaks down a lot of things. And like, it's hard. Don't get me wrong. Like, it's hard to have those conversations with yourself because then you might realize like, fuck, I just wasted 10 years, five years of my life in this wrong direction or whatever. Nobody wants to face those hard facts. Like 
fuck, I missed out in five years, but you know, you could potentially miss out on more if you don't, you know, do it sooner. For people listening and also for my own selfish inquiries, what are some tips or maybe if you were to put together a guide for solo traveling for an extended period of time, what are a few things that you would say are must-haves or things that you should do? It could have to be with your mindset. It doesn't have to be specific to Japan and Kyoto, but it could be just if you're going to go anywhere for three weeks by yourself, you should have this mindset, have this with you, anything that comes to mind. Yeah. So I mean, solo traveling, I was fortunate enough that you know my, I got to stay with my aunt, but I think... I'm not the one to want to like plan out a bunch of things because I feel like there could be more things that go wrong than right if I have to plan like all these itineraries. So I want to go like basically like mindset is like go with an open mind, be open to trying different things and be in that mindset rather than like, oh, I want to see this, this and this and like try to cram in like, you know, 40 different things in three weeks. Like that doesn't even feel like a vacation or like a time to get away. That feels more like a job like, Oh, okay. Like at 8am I got to like do this. And then at, you know, at two o'clock I got to do this. And like, I have to rush around and like, I'm like, there's definitely times in there that you want to see things that you have to do that. But in the grand scheme of things, like, you know, it's better to like leave your schedule a little bit open to like things that can come up rather than like packing things in and, you know, feeling even more stressed out before you came in than after. Um, that would be like my biggest key to like solo traveling or just traveling in general, but solo traveling for sure is a time to get away and be with your thoughts. So, you know, allow that space to happen. Don't have to cram it all in with stuff. Yeah, that makes sense because if everything's packed in too tightly, you're never really going to have that time to yourself. If you're, when you're just not doing things or events and you're just sitting around with your own thoughts, there's kind of nowhere to escape. But when you are constantly doing things, you're, I, I can imagine it could seem like work or like when people go on vacation and try to pack all of these just events, activities, and then it ends up feeling like they'd never even went away. I get that. Yeah. So I wanted to Definitely. I wanted to start to start to wrap up because I want to be conscious of your time and that kind of flew by. Yeah. I didn't even realize we're at an hour and forty minutes. Oh, it feels like forty five minutes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So I have, I have a few questions as we start to wrap up. And they're meant to be shorter form questions. You can answer as long as you want. Sometimes they end up generating uh, longer answers. But yeah, I'm just going to go into it. So the first question is, what is the most helpful thing you can purchase as a content creator under $300? Editing software is... Yeah. I think like Final Cut Pro is like $300, I believe. Yeah, I think Final Cut Pro is, but I would say editing software. I mean, I would say a large majority of people, 99% of the people have have an iPhone or some way of shooting video or like audio in that general sense. So being able to have an editing software just to cut it up is like super valuable. I mean, you can get iMovie for like 10 bucks, but learning how to edit and like doing all that, like, I mean, iPhone, iPhone shoot like 4K these days and like you don't, like especially like for social media content, a lot of people actually are like more drawn to iPhone content because it feels more natural. They're more used to seeing like videos that way. Honestly, like that's like a strategy that we're gonna have is like we're gonna have these high end like red cameras and all that. But I want to get in iPhone video as much as possible because that just feels more yeah. natural. Like, and on Twitter and Instagram, it's not guys- possible to make it 
that high quality. I, I don't know what the cutoff is, yeah. but yeah, when you shoot in four K, eight K, whatever it is, it can only go up to yeah. a certain point. Yeah, like that Leona stock was shot in eight K, and <laughs> I compressed it down to you know like ten eighty p on Twitter because like it can't handle eight K. So I would say that I would say that's probably the most important thing is getting editing software. That's just a world we live in, and being able to edit things on your own is only going to make you better at content creation. With everything that you know now and the journey that you've been on, if you could give yourself one piece of advice at the moment right before you picked up a camera for the first time to film something, what would you want to say to yourself? Failure is your best friend. If I had realized that much, much earlier on, I think that would have sped up this process like twofold. Uh, Just like not being afraid of failure, accepting that you are going to fail and actually actively not pursuing it, but like just trying things and like not afraid to fail. Cause like the more you fail, the at least and like, at least understand why you're failing. I think that's the most important part too. Is like not just failing to fail. If there's like a purpose to it and like, you kind of like, Oh yeah, I failed because of this and like take that into account. Then that's only going to make you better at what you're trying to do. What belief behavior or habit that you've adopted in the past three to five years has dramatically improved your life? It's something I'm still working on, but I feel like I've gotten a lot better at it, but it is truly not giving a fuck about what people think. It's just knowing that people... It's a great mindset. Don't give a fuck. I'm still working on it too. Like, um, Yeah, same. For sure. Especially for content creators. Like we actually do kind of have to gauge a little bit on like what people think about content, but it shouldn't be that heavily weighed. But yeah, so yeah, basically not giving a fuck and just doing things by what you feel is right. And like the opinions of others or whatever. And like I think a lot of people think people care way too much about their lives. Like people have their own problems. Like they don't actually give a shit that much in what you do. Like people have their own problems. And I think the more you get away from like, oh, like there aren't like thousands of people that are like watching my every move or like actually give a shit about what I do on a day to day. Like, dude, everybody has their own lives. Like, like if you just think in that sense, like you'll be better off. I actually just spoke about the spotlight effect on the podcast, which is basically exactly what you just summed up is that, uh, I didn't know that was an effect. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's an observed effect psychological effect by psychologists like that's uh, redundant basically where you think that your perception or where you think that people are perceiving more about you than they actually are so like if you have a stain on your shirt you overestimate how many people actually perceive that stain on your shirt and there's this one study where students were asked to wear an embarrassing t-shirt and it had a picture of Barry Manilow on it and they walked into a room of random students and before the, the students that were wearing the embarrassing t-shirt were asked to estimate how many people would notice the t-shirt or what was on the t-shirt or if anything was out of the ordinary. And most students guessed 50%. And it ended up being less than 25% of people noticed, which is about half of what yeah. they thought. Wow. And even That's if they did crazy. notice, it wasn't a topic of future conversation after the fact. Right. So it's like this whole effect where you kind of feel the eyes on you when they aren't there. And ironically, it's a lot of it has to do with egocentrism and the fact that everyone else feels the spotlight effect too. 
So everyone's like mm-hmm. so engaged in their own shit and like worrying <laughs> about what everyone else is going to think about them and that you're perceiving it just as strongly as they are. And that's like what mitigates the effect from person to person, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, if there's literally a thing, like if there's literally a name for it, that means that there's more than one person that feels that way. So <laughs> if there's like literally studies being made about it, it's probably a more than like one person popularized thing. So yeah, I'm sure everybody just thinks for themselves, which they should. Like, you know, you shouldn't give more shits about me than yourself. So worry about yourself, really. And we'll all be better. If you had the opportunity to give a quick message on a global broadcast, it could be like, say, everyone on the planet who's watching a YouTube video, your face appeared on the screen for five seconds, or anyone who's listening to music, your voice appeared in their headphones for five seconds. What quick message? would you want to give people? It could be a personal message. It could have to do with content creation. It could be anything. Just something that you would want to tell everyone if you had the chance. Mm, I had everybody to tell me this. Mm, let's see. I think it's honestly like like reiterating like that spotlight effect. I'd be like... Don't give a fuck. <laughs> whatever I, could think, I would be like, look, guys. I would try to distill it as blunt as possible. I'd be like, look, guys. Nobody actually gives a fuck about you. And I mean, in the nicest way. <laughs> Everybody has their own life to live. Nobody's actually going to give a shit what actually goes on your day-to-day life because they have their own shit to worry about. And the more you tell yourself that, the more happier you'll be in your own shoes because everybody has their own shoes to walk in. They're not going to be walking in yours. You have to walk in your own shoes. So live your life the way that you want to. And you know, don't worry about what other people think because at the end of the day, they have way more things to worry about themselves than about you. Thank you for tuning into the first episode of the Heartbeat series with Taki Green, co-founder of Momentum. The next thing you need to do is check out their website and content with the links in the description of this podcast or go to watch-momentum.com. And if you love this podcast, we would love if you could rate, subscribe, and leave a comment on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening. And maybe even tell a friend too. This helps us get more hard to reach listeners and do bigger and better things which means that we can keep bringing the best conversations to you. And we love what we do. Until next time.